Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast and more specifically, welcome to the October Journal Club episode of the podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to talk about some great sim literature. How are you, Ben? I'm good, my friend. and I think this is going to be a good episode. This quietly. Uh, yes, I agree. And you've been uh, starring international conference speaking. Some of our friends in Scotland at NHS Lothian and others have had the benefit of your travels. Is that right? We have, yeah, yeah. No, I got to speak in uh, Manchester at the ALSG conference, which was lovely. Did some podcasting for them, which was super fun. And then got to catch up with uh, the lovely Dan Houghton and uh, Walter Epic up in uh, Manchester. So that, uh, up in Edinburgh, rather. So that was just a lovely, lovely week and uh, some very nice uh, ALSG people over in the UK. Quite similar to the APLS phenotype in many ways. So no, it was lovely. Mm, yes, and uh, lots of good people that you've mentioned doing good simulations. So keep on go them. 100%. All right, well, we're going to do four papers, and I'm going to uh, start with two papers, both related to AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, and the first one is called Artificial Intelligence and the Simulationists, and this is uh, from Simulation in Healthcare, first author Rogers and a group of sim people, uh, including some educators as well as clinicians from Indiana University School of Medicine. And look, the key question in this article, Ben, I think is, can chat GPT write scenarios for us? Uh, so they start off with a little bit of a background about ChatGPT. Um, for anyone who might have been under a rock for the last nine months, uh, they go through some of the history around the launch of ChatGPT back in November last year. Uh, I found out what GPT actually stood for, a generative pre-trained transformer, which sounds quite exciting, like maybe something you would buy as merchandise for a movie. But uh, anyway, it explains how these go, how ChatGPT and similar large language models essentially use a Q&A process um, to generate text, including um, uh, potentially scenarios. Of course, there's other uh, AI tools that generate all sorts of other stuff like photos and videos and all sorts of other things, but they focus their thoughts on chat GPT and the text function. So as they said, there's lots of potential SIM applications for artificial intelligence, but this one really focuses on is it any good for writing scenarios? So how did they actually do that? Uh, they asked ChatGPT to write two common scenarios. The first was an adult cardiac arrest um, for medical and nursing students, and the second was a sick pediatric asthma patient. Uh, and this one was meant to be written for practicing doctors, nurses, and respiratory therapists. Uh, and they actually outlined in their supplementary material exactly what the question and responses were, which I think was really helpful and probably essential if you're reading this article to see how that um, how the prompts generated the scenarios. And then they decided to evaluate these scenarios using something called the Simulation Scenario Evaluation Tool, the SSET, uh, and they used pretty experienced sim educators to look at the scenarios, evaluate it against the tool, which is one of these um, sort of uh, structured rubrics that rates the scenarios according to learning objectives, scenario overview, critical actions, debriefing plans, etc. 
So the experienced educators looked at the scenario, rated it against the tool, plus also gave a few free-floating points about whether it was any good. So what did they find for scenario one, the cardiac arrest? They got a score of 86, given that it scored between 20 and 100. That sounded pretty good to me, although I wasn't too sure how to position that number. And scenario two, the peds asthma, also did pretty well, 78.8. And subjectively, they said the strengths of the chat GPT scenarios were that they had quite specific learning objectives, clear debriefing plans, and they were realistic scenarios. But that some of the weaknesses were sometimes uh, objectives were not time-bound, so for instance, requiring defibrillation in a certain amount of time, not referencing current treatment guidelines, and they thought the adult case objectives might have been a little bit too advanced for medical and nursing students. And in their discussion, they say that ChatGPT did, and I quote, a competent job of uh, writing some scenarios, but that the experts did need to fact check. Um, And the other comments that they made was clearly the authors, one of the things here, needed to learn how to ask the questions to get the right scenarios. So when they did the first one, it took them an hour of toing and froing. But then the second scenario, they managed to write in 20 minutes, which is pretty quick. And obviously, this is what people are looking for, is to expedite the process of what is often quite a uh, exhaustive process writing a scenario. And they came up with a list of recommendations uh, about how to get the most out of chat GPT if you are doing that. And they seemed pretty common sense, but probably really feed into this idea that you need to be careful about what you're asking chat GP to do. And the better questions you can ask, the better output you're going to get. Uh, They made a comment saying that "Hmm, maybe there's an ethical issue. Do we need to credit ChatGPT as a scenario author? And we'll come back to that in the next article. Uh, So I thought this is interesting, and I think we are going to see lots of ChatGPT-enabled scenario design. What did you think, Ben? Uh, (laughs) So many thoughts, Vic. So many (laughs) (laughs) thoughts. And as you were reading out, as you were sort of discussing your thoughts, I was like, oh, I think I might have veered into unhinged rant a little bit. (laughs) But no, this is why people are listening. That's right. Yeah, that's what the people come for, right? Um, Look, I thought it was a nice paper and I thought it was a sensible way of introducing simulationists to some of the opportunities that are available through using GP chat. And I think we've seen that with, uh, you know, Zach and Edge. We, we were seeing some great demonstrations previously of, uh, you know, it is quite impressive when you just chuck in a few sentences and you see it spit out a full scenario. Um, and I just hate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and look, the problem I have with GP chat is essentially the same problem I have it's with the chat Netflix. GPT, by the way. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, is the same is problem I have with the Netflix it. algorithm. Is like it sounds great, and you start out with Orange is the New Black and House of Cards, and then you just end up with a whole bunch of Too Hot to Handle. And <laughs> I just remain concerned that a, pro- <laughs> a process that's inherently algorithmic, it doesn't lead us to creativity. And I was reading this great quote from... David Simon, who was the creator of The Wire, yeah, being interviewed on NPR. And they were talking about, oh, well, wouldn't you love it if you're having trouble with a scene and you just plugged it in and AI solved that problem for you? And he says, I would rather put a gun in my mouth. And he says, if this is where the industry is going, it's going to infantilize itself. We're all going to be watching stuff we've watched before, only worse. And so for me, I really remain troubled by this because I I haven't been super impressed with uh, ChatGPT's ability to create scenarios. I think it's quite 
impressive at a superficial level. Uh, but if we continue to rely on an algorithm to generate stuff for us, then opportunities for creativity are going to be sacrificed in pursuit of convenience. Could not agree more. You know, the Netflix algorithm can be problematic at a number of levels. So one of the ways to get to the point that you are is to have a partner who actually quite likes watching Too Hot to Handle. And then suddenly <laughs> your algorithm is all confused. Anyway, back to the comments here. And the second part that I was concerned about actually is in the algorithmic nature of it. For instance, in their cardiac arrest scenario, they came up with a 62-year-old male with hypertension and hyperlipidemia. So yet again, we've got profiling according to gender that yet again uh, means that we miss the opportunity to recognize that women get acute coronary syndromes as well. His name is Mr. Johnson. I guess we don't know what ethnic background, but that seems a very Caucasian name. His wife calls for help heteronormative, if ever I heard it. And then they had these uh, categories of what nurses and physicians' roles were. And maybe you don't want them to be the nurses and physicians' role. Maybe that is something more to be explored. Likewise, the seven-year-old uh, boy that has the asthma attack is accompanied by his mother, but the scenario had nothing in it about the interactions with the mother, which I would have thought would be a fairly crucial part of thinking about how you care for this very sick child. So I think this is the problem with algorithmic anything, isn't it, that we may also reinforce the stereotypes, and I think this is well recognised with AI across the board, is that it perpetuates what it's got to draw upon, and that usually is stereotypes. And I guess before I finish my little rant here, uh, is that was not at all picked up by the simulation scenario evaluation tool. And I actually wonder if that tool doesn't need revision, whether the evaluation of any scenario should assess whether it is perpetuating stereotypes or whether it allows for appropriate representation of a diverse patient group. So there you go. I had a little rant too. Yes, I liked it. I, I would have just listened for another 20 minutes. <laughs> um, and I, I sort of penciled in some similar things as well. Like we've, we've talked a lot about that, you know, that, that nuanced considered scenario design and thinking about equity, diversity and inclusion and hidden curriculum and cultural compression. And um, I, I think I, I did actually go to a great session in Manchester on AI. And I do think it has opportunities, particularly for checking your curriculum or asking, you know, challenging it to find things that you've missed, for example. Um, but I think the risk with the convenience is that it becomes uh, the, I get the philosophy is I will start with it and then finesse it and personalize it, but it's just not what people do. I know. Uh, they're actually potentially lazier. Yeah. Mm. So all of our rants, I think, should take nothing away from the authors who actually did a good job, I think, of showing us how ChatGPT would write a scenario. And 100%. they described beautifully how they went about evaluating it and they did not pretend for one minute that was perfect and nor did they pretend that this was the ultimate guide to uh, ChatGPT writing scenarios for you. So I think it is really good work and what I hope is now as people get more and more experience, we can continue to find the appropriate place of this um, because I'm certainly here for it. It's just how is the is the real question to optimally add value. Yes. Don't want yes. to reflect on the quality of the authorship. Excellent people and excellent work. All right. Well, since we're on the artificial intelligence bandwagon, uh, the next paper is related also from Simulation Healthcare. And this is titled, Can Artificial Intelligence Be My Co-Author? And this is an 
editorial from the editor-in-chief of Simulation Healthcare, Mark Sherbo. Uh, and really the question here is, can we and should we use artificial intelligence, and again in this case ChatGPT, to help write our manuscripts? So this is for... Uh, it's definitely for the people who are writing manuscripts, but I'd argue it's also for the people who are reading manuscripts, which I think is most of the people here. Uh, so they also, um, he also starts with some background material on ChatGPT, uh, not too dissimilar from the last article. Uh, but I, there are a couple of good descriptions here that help my ongoing education about exactly what a large language model does. And I'm going to quote here, it's designed to predict the next best word in a string. And I thought, oh, that is actually what it does. And it does that from a huge amount of volume. So it can compose emails, summarize material, perform copy editing, write learning objectives, uh, create lesson plans. Um, he also goes on to say, yes, there's some well-recognized concerns about inaccuracy, particularly references. And this is a problem if you were thinking about ChatGPT being a co-author. Uh, it does have um, biases and material show up in its responses. And it has these hallucinations, which I think we also talked about when we read Lorelei's article here. Um, ChatGPT does not have the maturity or maybe psychological safety to say it doesn't know. It just makes stuff up. So what about in publishing? Uh, and this is where it gets to, I think, because this essentially is now the position statement for simulation in healthcare, thinking about chat GPT in uh, manuscripts. Uh, he makes the point that there is some difficulty in reliably detecting plagiarism, but it does seem like we're getting much better at that now. And we have had a whole range of AI detection tools come out. But on the central question, can artificial intelligence be your co-author? Can you just feed in your stuff to this from that you've done in your study and say, write me a 1,500-word article on this. Uh, well, the position statement, and they, he goes on to describe why, is no. But mainly that's because uh, under the uh, ICGME policies, authors need to take responsibility and accountability for anything that is produced. And, of course, chat GPD can't and won't do that. So that's the main official... Uh, and sensible reason why uh, ChatGPT can't be an author. So, uh, and that has been adopted by most of the journals. Um, there's a couple of international committees of journal editors, and most of them have essentially adopted this stance. Some journals have gone even further about what you can and can't do. And then there was some discussion about uh, if AI was used to generate certain elements uh, in the manuscript, like a graphic or something like that. It's simply a matter of disclosing it and acknowledging that in the methods section, which seems to make sense according to any source that you might have that generates any part of your manuscript. So I thought this was uh, a timely thing and it made a bit of sense and it certainly educated me while making it clear what the position was. I don't know what you thought, Ben. I did. I thought it was um, an important paper at an interesting moment. It does feel very like sci-fi we're living in the future that we're having to have a discussion about can AI be an author on a paper? So it's quite interesting uh, and I agreed with the stance and I, I thought it was good that uh, simulation in healthcare has, has put that out as a clear um, guideline going forward. Yeah, and quite a few of the publishing houses have done that as well. Mm. One of the things that uh, he did mention in passing but not in depth was about peer review. 
And I am a little worried about this as someone who handles manuscripts and asks reviewers to review things uh, because I imagine there's a great temptation to just get your manuscript that you're supposed to be reviewing, put it into ChatGPT and ask it to write a review for you. Uh, and number one, I don't think it's good enough to do that in the way that we would like. Um and secondly, I don't think it's ethical without the consent of the people who have provided the manuscript. So, but I don't think no one's actually in all the stuff that we send to people, we don't say, by the way, you can't just take this manuscript and put it into some third party software and uh, see what comes back. And I think we probably need to recognize that people are using ChatGPT for a lot of things that may or may not be a good idea. And I am a bit worried about peer review in this regard i think that's very sensible all right no, then agreed. over to you i've done all the hard work up until now you have so thank you for that and uh, <laughs> we'll see how the other half rolls uh so uh you put this paper in and i'm really glad you did uh it's entitled increase in newborns ventilated within the first minute of life and reduced mortality after clinical data guided simulation training uh, by May Cecil Vadler et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And this is actually a sequel project to a paper that we covered in 2022 on Simulcast. And it was, uh, as I'm sure you recall, Vic, a very well-designed and run prospective observational study from a Norwegian and Tanzanian team, uh, where there was some really impressive work that I was quite jealous of in a Tanzanian hospital to improve the frequency of ventilation in the first minute of life in babies, utilizing a program called Helping Babies Breathe. So as a very quick refresher, if you didn't uh, listen to that podcast or read that paper, um, for those of you who are not involved in neonatal resuscitation, babies, when they're born, just not infrequently get their breathing a bit mixed up. And if they are fixed up with just a few breaths from a bag valve mask, uh, they kind of sort themselves up, work out breathing, and you can hand them back to mum very quickly. But if they don't get that, then they can kind of spiral and deteriorate very fast, even though the initial solution was quite straightforward. And so starting ventilation in that first minute can be the difference between a very routine delivery and a very heartbreaking outcome. So this is an important, sensible task from my perspective in terms of a clear organizational focus on a particular clinical skill. It, it makes sense at the gut level. And the previous project, which was facilitated through 2015 to 2018, unfortunately showed really only modest improvements in the time to initiation of this so-called golden minute ventilation in this rural hospital, despite some really impressive and intensive work from uh, the researchers themselves, from locally recruited midwives and champions who really engaged staff in a very large amount of simulation-enhanced neonatal resuscitation training. And I really felt for that team at the time because despite that huge amount of effort and some excellent clinical observation, things didn't really approach the targets they were aiming for. Uh, but lo and behold, the team just pushed on and have tried some new strategies and published the paper that we're talking about today. And this new one is a prospective four-year observational QI study, including all of the baby deliveries at Hayden Lutheran Hospital from 2017 through to August 2021. And during that four-year observation, the team launched uh, for one of those years, a golden minute campaign between 2018 and 2019, uh, where they did a lot of promotional work and a lot of focused QI work 
and some intensive simulation work. And then they continued to observe the impact of that intervention, not just during the year that they did it, but also for the two years afterwards. So they had, I can't really even cover it all, but they had local midwifery champions, they had individual simulation-based training like the last project, but there are a lot more process changes at the quality improvement level, such as monthly QI meetings, follow-up of action points, monthly scenario team training, weekly morning reports, daily clinical debriefs of shifts and about seven-minute debriefs after neonatal resuscitations, and having to improve it. Having tried to improve a variety of things in my own services, Vic, I've got to say, I was just so impressed. This is a lot of work and a lot of very deliberate message saturation throughout the service. I can see you nodding fiercely. Oh, absolutely. And not just a lot of work, but a lot of collaboration work. You know, there was industry here in terms of Lado. There was academia uh, in terms of University of Stavanger. There was practitioners. Uh, there was cross-cultural work to be done, and it's just so impressive how they managed to get all that together. And I'm sure we're going to get to this, but it does make one take a little bit of a breath about what it takes to improve things. Oh, 100%. That's my main take-home. So look, what the results were this time were actually a lot better. So they are very different from the previous experience. So there was an increase in non-breathing newborns, which is the babies we do want to ventilate. We don't want to ventilate the healthy ones just to get a checkbox. Uh, and so that improved from 15.8% at baseline, getting a vent ventilation within one minute, to 68.5% with uh, convincing p-value. And a uh, and then we could see some skill decay and uh, over the next two years where it went from 68.5 down to 42.2 and then 28.9% in the following post-intervention periods. So similarly, time from birth to first ventilation decreased from 101 seconds to 55 seconds, which is pretty decent. And then it increased. So uh, after the project finished, uh, it increased back to 67 seconds and then to 85. So not back to baseline and not back to where they were in 2015. Uh, but there's, you know, completely believably, uh, we can see that even despite all of this intensive work, things do start to drift quite quickly. So what did the authors take away from this? Well, they've written that given the study design, it was difficult to weigh the importance of simulation training relative to the other QI interventions. But we speculate that the monthly data-guided scenario team trainings led by skilled simulation facilitators focusing on timelines from birth to start ventilation were fundamental in changing this practice. And after a near decade with no improvement in time from birth to starting bag valve mask ventilation, the midwives managed to halve the time in real situations. It's just really, really impressive. And the authors actually point out there have been uh, sort of papers or editorials written saying basically this target is inachievable. And so they were understandably, or I read it, that they were, they were quite proud of the fact that they have been able to prove this can be done. It is an achievable thing. Um, they've written that they believe that a combination of all the different QI efforts was necessary to finally achieve the reduction in time to start ventilation. Um, and I think that's a pretty fair take home. You know, these numbers and the clear sign of knowledge decay at an organizational level as time goes on just feels very believable. Uh, and for me, there's a lot of concepts for reflection here in this paper that I just want to spend some more time digesting, which is firstly, as you mentioned, Vic, just the huge 
amount of work it can take to make a significant improvement in hospital-wide performance, even when the thing that you're chasing seems like a no-brainer and a good metric to pursue. Um, Secondly, that there is evidence that some of that effort does stick around after you've done such intensive work, not as much as you might like, but there, you know, it does help. Uh, and then thirdly, you know, that work, you know, fades alarmingly rapidly. And I find that quite confronting in terms of the sheer organizational gravity that just keeps pulling us back towards baseline performance at the hospital level. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other things that we got from both the first paper and this one, are the powerful effect of audit and feedback. And I think that's something that's missing from most of our QI is people are good at giving us education directed at everybody instead of saying, hang on, where are people's individual group dyad performance and how do we help people get better? Uh, and also improved equipment and systems. And I think that was a bit of an eye-opener for me because my memories of neonatal resuscitation are a while ago, but uh, actually recognising that if you change the ergonomics of how people do ventilation, it can be far more effective. Uh very hard to maintain it, and I think despite even their um, low-dose, high-frequency training, it's hard to keep it up. And what it makes me think is, and I think QI literature is quite good at recognising this, that when you put a lot of emphasis into something, other things may suffer. Or if you put a lot of emphasis in something, other things may improve because you've improved some of the uh, under underlying things. And I actually would be quite interested, I don't know if they have any other data that they collected, but I would have been interested to see how these same teams performed on other tasks that weren't neonatal ventilation, but which maybe were parallel tasks. Like, did they get better at maybe putting in their feeding tubes or doing something else that involved some teamwork and some proficiency and some uh, getting better at technical skill? So, uh, yeah, I thought great work, of course, but I think it does... Um, invite us to ongoing way to think about what we prioritize in QI because it's a big effort to improve it and what are the things that lead to that improvement. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, it's just full of admiration, like what a hospital and, and what intensive work from that team. Uh, very humbling and uh, inspiring in many ways. Makes me maybe even more exciting for the two weeks I'm going to be spending in Norway in November. Yeah. With some of the members of this team. Oh, I'm very jealous. Well, uh, pass on my fangirling to them, please, un unashamedly. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, moving on to a very different paper. Uh, so I'll put this one in, and it's a, a much more of a personal essay, really. Uh, so this one's called Recovering from Adversity, Do We Need to Protect Our Learners? It's by Professor Dinka Ram Ramananda. Pi, uh, and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And so, look, Vic, this is essentially a very personal, very reflective essay uh, that I really enjoyed reading, but found immensely challenging to read. Uh, and that was simultaneously what I liked about it, really, and, and why I wanted to suggest it, because it was a very different perspective from my own, with a lot of um, Indian cultural specifics that actually, honestly, don't sit super comfortably with me, uh, but it was really refreshingly acknowledged in a very pragmatic, authentic, and, and realist kind of way. And we often talk 
uh, on simulcast and in other spaces about the Western bias that we have in simulation literature. And I thought this is a nice little example of uh, how to give a window into a very different perspective uh, and a different lens. So in terms of the essay itself, look, it's a very personal, rigorously honest reflection that starts with the author sharing a tale from many years ago when he was a very junior doctor, when he essentially intentionally administered a sedative dose of morphine in a hypoxic and agitated patient, and it precipitated the death of that patient. And I think what struck out for me in this narrative was that while these stories are often framed around medical error, the author actually acknowledges in this paper that one of his primary drivers was actually irritation with the patient at a point in his 48-hour shift where he was angry, uh, fatigued, and, and far too junior to have the knowledge or uh, ability to manage that level of responsibility. And he talks about that very frankly. Uh, he also talks about the fact that his consultant informed him in no uncertain terms that he killed the patient and then explores some of the ways he fought and then processed that uh, concept over time. And now the reason he shares this story is to bring up this interesting conundrum within Sim, where he essentially argues that we are at risk of creating some kind of mythical alternate reality in the Sim lab where ideas and critiques are shared in the most sensitive and gentlest or appropriate of ways. Uh, and he points out that that isn't most people's realities when they head back to the floor. And basically he identifies that within the healthcare culture of his own country, it's a deeply hierarchical one and pointed and brutal moments of feedback do happen. And he argues that in order to prepare, to prepare healthcare workers for that reality, maybe we should stop working so hard to protect them from that in their simulations. And a few things he says kind of hit home and fire me up at the same time. And, and one is that he argues that an alternative solution is to train the senior clinicians to recognize the impact of their words and their hierarchical position and the ways that they see their patients that are fundamentally unhealthy. But then he argues that that option just isn't realistically going to happen in the near future in a country like India with the cultural dynamics as they are, and in a, you know, they're pretty cut deeply ingrained within the healthcare system. And look, I found that really hard to read because on the one hand, it's kind of defeatist. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I love that he's acknowledging that this probably should be where we can focus our energy, which is something that, you know, that is a, a tune that we've often played on Simulcast, that we should be focusing a lot more on getting the leaders to change their behavior rather than trying to make the juniors change them somehow. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's not necessarily wrong when he says this is not going to change anytime soon. Um. The article closes with this quote, which I think sums up his perspective pretty well, where he says, I believe that exposing our learners to these harsh realities of medical practice in the simulation environment will make them stronger and better prepared for real-world practice, and we need to expose learners to adverse psychological encounters with their peers and superiors, just as we expose them to adverse patient encounters, and we need to support learners during the process, warn them of the possibility of such events during the pre-brief, and acknowledge and normalize their feelings during the debrief, but not lull them into a false sense of security that the ground rules of SIM, such as mutual respect and psychological safety, are the norm in the clinical environment. This is a really confronting sentence for me. <laughs> At a meta level, though, 
I think this is an interesting article to think about the power of personal stories, what they can achieve and when they should and shouldn't be used. And I think this is a nice example of using a story to make a point rather than sharing a narrative where the point is the trauma itself, which I see sometimes and I just don't find that helpful. But I do think actually this article is a little bit overly honest. And while I find that admirable, I think it actually shifts the focus of the conversation a bit on to the patient death itself rather than the impact of the feedback that he received, which I think is actually more central to his argument here than what happened clinically. Um, and so I almost found at times some of that authenticity uh, and honesty that I really respect because I think it takes a lot to put something like this onto paper. Um, and it's a very human piece of writing. I, I did actually find it a slight distraction from the main thesis. Um, as for the argument itself, look, I agree. If we want to change culture, we should be working with the people at the top more than hoping the next generation will sort it out if we tell them to. I don't love the whole let's accept the reality of healthcare and toughen up the young'uns mentality either, but I think there's some genuine nuance here in terms of thinking about the impact of that safe container, whether it's as noble as we always think it is, and what that actually looks like in cultures outside uh, the Western Hemisphere and, and whether what we're espousing is actually realistic. Yeah, so I agree with a lot of what you said. I maybe fell more onto the triggered side than the, uh, the other side. I think the story, as you say, it's uh, deliberately rather shocking. Um, it's certainly not unheard of, and I don't think there's be too many doctors of our generation because I actually think uh, Professor Pye and I are probably of about an age uh, that who wouldn't have had an experience something like this. And I guess what we don't know is a parallel universe. So might he have learnt even more and in a better way and also something about how to help people learn from that experience if it had been done differently? We don't know. He says he learnt something from that experience and I don't doubt that's true. But could those lessons have been learnt in different ways um, if supervision had been better and if the kind of feedback that had been given had been of a more useful way and maybe there would have been more exploration around the contributors to patient safety and outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess the first thing is, yes, it's, uh, I guess, good to share an experience and, as you say, appropriately, storytelling is powerful. Uh, but what the story we tell about the story is, I think, probably where... I now start to diverge a little bit from the point that's being made here. You know, I think his question, is it necessary to protect our learners from psychological shocks? The answer is clearly no. Uh, it's just that I think, yet again, we're seeing a difficulty in seeing the nuance in what psychological safety is. There is no doubt that uh, simulation can subject people to many stressors and many situations in which high expectations are there. But the difference is that um, if people uh, fail or succeed at those, they won't be subjected to shame and ridicule. Uh, and that's the difference between safe and soft. And I think there's a few sentences in this that suggest that we're being too soft in sim. Uh, not that we're being too safe in sim. So I think it's really important distinction here that I think, the, as I said, the usage here um, at least is not in my understanding of uh, psychological safety. The other things that, 
you know, come out strongly is that we have to have well-designed simulation if you're going to do high stakes, things like that. And I could not agree more. And also I think the idea of everyone being, you know, assholes in the clinical environment and then coming in and being all lovely in the sim environment, that should not happen. What I, like you, just can't accept is this perpetuating toxic behaviours through sim. And if we accept that there is a bi-directional relationship between sim and the real world, it's not just neutral. It's not just, oh, well, it's like this in the clinical world, so we'll do it in the sim. It actually means that the more we do it in the sim, the more likely it is to be acceptable in the clinical world. What we do know is that India is exactly the same as every other country in the world, and that is that behaviours like this kill patients. And that if we do have toxic hierarchies and people are unable to speak up, that performance is less. So, you know, that's been a cultural norm lots of places. We have facts and literature and knowledge about this um, function of how teams behave to each other and what implications that has for patient outcomes. So I don't think we can just throw our hands in the air and say this is what is the cultural norm um, or the norm in any different environment. And I kind of think then it gets to this same bit of gaslighting thing. Like, are we actually going to say, you know what? Men love slapping women on the bum. They should get used to it. Let's train the women to deal with the men uh, sexually harassing them. So I can't accept it here either. So uh, there we go. There's my rant for the day. I, I, I can't take on the nihilism that is we can't address those other things. And I also just can't take on the what we're going to do to learners so that they learn to suck it up. I don't know that that's exactly his point. Uh, what I don't want is people reading this going, great, I know, let's go and toughen up our learners because the rest of us have to deal with the outcome of that. And the research that we've done in psychological safety shows all the harm that bad simulation can do elsewhere, that may people come into sims uh, innately defensive and really unable to learn, in which case we just shouldn't be bothered at all. I have nothing to value add to that <laughs> sentence and series, that paragraph. So thank you. I enjoyed listening to it. Uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been more letters to the editor after it. Oh, yeah. I know, in either direction. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I've got an opinion. Uh, everyone's going to have an opinion. There is also <laughs> evidence and, you know, research in a lot of these areas that I think could be brought to bear into the conversation. So I'm kind of surprised. But yeah. when I had a quick look through Sim in Healthcare, I hadn't seen any responses. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So uh, that surprises me a little bit. Oh, well, we'll see how it plays out. <laughs> All right. Well, as a last thing, listeners to Simulcast, if you want this level of provocation and more, don't forget, come to Simulation Reconnect at Bond University uh, Wednesday the 15th of November. And if you go onto the Simulcast website, we've got a little page heading there on Simulation Reconnect, and that will get you onto tickets and program and all sorts of other things. Well, thank you, Ben. That's it for October. Thank you, Hope, my friend. Hopefully you're staying at home and just doing some work for the next month. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to hang out with you. Very good. I know. Looking forward to that. All right. Well, this is Ben and Vic signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. <laughs>